um, open them up to the book of Philippians chapter number 3. you visiting with us, we've been going through a study through the, uh, the epistle uh, here, Philippians, this uh, letter of joy um, and instruction, I think is both a good reminder, there's joy uh, in the Lord and we can rejoice in him and uh, how he instructs us through his word. Philippians 3, I'm again reading verse number 17 this morning. We'll read down to verse number 1 of chapter number 4. The Bible says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Father, we have prayed many times this morning. We again come before you asking you for wisdom and help in Jesus' name. Amen. What could be more prized than to be a Roman citizen? What, what, gave, uh, what gave that sense of privilege? What people sought after so diligently and at such great expense in the day of Paul than to be a citizen of the great Roman Empire? Well, so fixed and and such a valuable or coveted uh, thing it was in those days at the fall of Rome, Jerome, the one who gave us the Latin Vulgate, um, he wrote when Rome fell, the city that has taken the whole world was taken itself. He continued on, the distress caused him to lament, the world sinks into ruin. The greatest thing that he could imagine in the world was the Roman Empire. Uh, Its beauty, its prestige, its prominence in the world. And at the fall of the barbarians, uh, Jerome spent his life, the end of his life, living in caves. Well, the Philippians lived with this privilege of being a Roman colony uh, in the days of Paul. It was something that they did not earn. It was granted to them. It was given to them. They were... Uh, proud of this prestigious right that they had to be called Romans. Not everyone in the town rightfully were Roman citizens, but, but nevertheless it was something that they were proud of. You see that in the book of Acts chapter number 15 when Paul goes to Philippi to preach the gospel and, and as he's preaching the gospel he's, he's beat and thrown in jail and, and they're going to release him the next day after he sings and has a prayer meeting in jail and the jailer gets saved and a lot of cool stuff happened. And they come and release him to get out of town. And he says, would you treat a Roman citizen like this? And the leaders of his town were scared. 
because they have done this to a Roman citizen. And so the Philippians were very familiar with this idea of Roman citizenship. What could be better than that? Well, a a better citizenship, a better kingdom, a better king. And that's really what he's pointing us to here in uh, chapter at the end of chapter number 3, verse number 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Look back with me, and as we look at this text this morning in chapter number 1, Paul has already talked about being a citizen of heaven, or being a citizen. We find that in chapter 1, verse 27. And he instructs the church, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith and the gospel. And the beginning of that language there, only let your manner of life, is the idea to live as citizens, live fulfilling the obligations that a citizen would have to live in whatever country they belong to. There's many obligations for us as Americans, and so he's instructing them to live out their citizenship. Now, first, we might understand this as that they are to live as good Roman citizens in a way and consistent with the gospel message which they heard. That would be true, just like we are to live as good Americans. It's an odd term to say from a pulpit, but you're to live like a good American in a way that is consistent with the gospel, in a way that is consistent with what the Bible teaches, or a good Hungarian, or a good Romanian, or whatever it may be. Live in a way that is consistent. Early apologists in the Christian faith uh, began to write to the leaders of Rome and all their officials telling them how Christianity made them better Romans, made them better citizens, and trying to get them to quit persecuting the church. But chapter number 3 has a different take on this and reminds us that he's not speaking of our obligations as citizens of Rome, but our obligation of our citizenship of heaven. Verse number 20, but our citizenship is not here, it is in heaven. Just like the church, or just like Philippi was considered a Roman colony in Macedonia, So the church is considered an outpost, a a heavenly colony in the world. So it is here and uh, and all over the world that the church, as it gathers together, as God forms it, as it worships, as it lives together in community and fellowship, is is a glimpse of the heavenly kingdom. It is an outpost where the saints of God come and are encouraged and Paul is just simply reminding the church here I know you're in Philippi I know you have the prized possession of citizenship that that is valued among you but let me tell you of something greater the kingdom of God and your belonging there your belonging there Peter tells it in the opening passage we read this morning if you want to turn with me to first number Pete or first Peter first number Peter <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter number 2. And he gives us that designation or the idea, verse number 9. He begins speaking about Christ before this and what we have in him and, and his foundation. 
But he speaks to the church now, and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I did not put it down in my notes, but as Walter was reading that this morning, isn't that a blessed statement? A people of his own possession. Uh, Just the joy of belonging to him. He says, he goes on and says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And verse number 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And so he's speaking to the church and he's reminding them that you're different than what you once were. You're a chosen race or a a chosen people, a holy or royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that is gathered out from the ends of the earth, his own possession. That marvelous language would be familiar to Peter in the Jewish uh, culture because they, they were told that they were a chosen people. We speak of that when we speak of them in the Old Testament. But here Peter is going beyond this holy nation or this kingdom of God in the sense of ethnicity. Is it speaking about one people group or one, uh, one idea or one language? He's speaking about others that did not belong to God, that was estranged to God. And he says, you are a holy nation, a chosen people. I remember being in <clears throat> Nicaragua and I was... Uh, on a mission trip, and and I was sitting across from a pastor. He was a pastor of a local church there, and and he did not speak any English, and I did not speak any Spanish, and so we ate together in quiet, uh, just sitting there, and uh, I, we just sat there <laughs> eating. A couple of kids come by and sat, and they began to talk to him, and he talked to them, and so I was just felt out of place, like a, a you know you would feel out of place in a context like that. What I say that is the kingdom of God extends beyond all of those limitations and boundaries which has separated us. Peter is referring to those who were, uh, were outside of the commonwealth of Israel and outside of the promises and all of those things. And he says, no, you belong to God. He's called you out of all of that diversity to himself. And he's called you together as living stones. We are built together, as he mentions earlier. Now really here he speaks, when he speaks about the kingdom, he's not speaking about the differences in nationalities or languages. What he's speaking about, the difference between being in the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Notice, he says, we were at one time estranged from God. Look at it with me in verse number 10. He says, you were not a people. At one time we lived, we were born into the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom that is against God. We, to put it another way, when we hoisted up the flag of our nationality and our belonging, it did not have a cross on it and it did not point to God. We were living in the domain and the rule under the prince and the power of the air in Ephesians chapter number 2. The same thing was true whether they were Roman or barbarian or Greek or, or Jewish, whatever you want to call it. We were all born sinful and bent away from God in the kingdom of darkness. 
That's what Peter is referring to here in the lumping all of the different regions that we see in this world that divide us, lumping all of them up and saying, really what you were a part of was the kingdom of this world, the kingdom that was against God. Just as the gospel unites us, really the doctrine of depravity unites us, reminding us that we're all bent away from God. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and his goodness. And yet here in the midst of this, he says that we have been brought near. It was by God's grace and his mercy that he has united us and made us his people. Notice verse number 10 again, once you were not a people, but now you are a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What brings us into the kingdom of God is God himself and his mercy. It is by his mercy that he has brought to ruin Satan's kingdom and all uh, who are subject to it. It is by the mercy of God that he sends into the world his light, his son, his king to, to walk among us and preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But not just send Jesus as a preacher into the world, a light to, to shed light on the reality of the human condition, but send Jesus into the world to defeat Satan through his death and resurrection. The kingdom of God is, is established and secured by Jesus Christ in his accomplishments when he lived 2,000 years ago on this earth by dying and raising from the dead. The Bible says he made an open shame of them or open spectacle of them. In one part, Jesus talking about a strong man, speaking of Satan. He says it takes a stronger man to come in and bind him. That way he may spoil his goods. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That is the mercy which the gospel offers to us. A strong man coming in, defeating someone you and I could not defeat so that he may deliver us from his, his grasp, from his hold. Every one of us are born in the kingdom of darkness. And it is here in the gospel and it is through Christ God has offered us deliverance. It is his mercy. We sing all morning about his grace, his amazing grace, his, his matchless love that he extends to us. And it is not just to, to help us along a little bit, to deliver us, remove us, to, to pull us out of darkness and bring us into his kingdom of light. It's such an amazing gift that it is that He has not only brought us out, but He reminds us that while we were wearing a different banner or a different patch on your arm, for those of you who are in the military, He has brought you in as citizens and fellow heirs in His kingdom. You just think about that for a moment, of the war going on in Ukraine. And you think about the Russian soldiers that are taken into captivity. And let's just say they're, they're caught and they say, we're sorry we didn't mean to do that after all the damage that they've done in Ukraine. That's great. We'll, we'll make you citizens of Ukraine now. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? At least in our human thinking. Some of you are kind of along with me. Others are like, where is he going with that? All I'm saying is that is what you see in the goodness and mercy of God. <laughs> and that as we put our faith and trust as we receive the victory that has overcome the world, as we receive that by faith, we have not only made peace with God, in other words, there's no more conflict, but we've been brought into His kingdom, His rule, and His goodness to live by. 
The Philippian church needed to be reminded of what they possessed was greater than what they could possess in this earthly life. Something more stable than Rome could offer them that is the kingdom of God. Rejoice in that. It is better back in Philippians. You want to turn with me back to Philippians. Because our citizenship is in heaven, that means our name is on the roll in heaven. It is better because it is eternal. We said when Jerome saw the end of Rome, he thought it was the end of the world. And he spent the last days of his life barely existing. But God's kingdom does not shake among the transitory swaying of the kingdoms of this world. And that's still true today. God's kingdom is eternal. But not only do we rejoice in that and to be reminded of our citizenship being in heaven, he speaks of how we're to live as citizens. We already said in chapter number one, he says we're to live our citizenship in a way that is worthy of a gospel that that measures up to living out what we believe. Living out our faith is what he's instructing us to do. And God in His grace has reminded us often and given us His Word so that we might know how to live the Christian life. Isn't that the question? How do you live out the faith? Well, you live it out through the instructions He's given to us in His Word. You live it in a way which is honoring to your Father which is in heaven. Maybe some of you were given the speech by your Father as you went out to wherever you went out, leaving the home, and they says, don't mess up my good name. Well, there's in some ways, Paul tells the Ephesians that we're to be imitators of our Father in heaven, to live and walk like Him. And so there is a, a reality that God has given us His instruction, but He's also set a pattern for us in how we're to live in Jesus Christ. Notice Ephesians 5, I'll read it for you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or to live in a way which honors God, a way in which Christ is modeled for us. Paul has already spoken to us in chapter number 2 about living with this mind, the same mind which Christ had. In verse number 5, let that mind be in you, which Christ had in himself, Ephesians 5, we're to love like Christ. And so God has set us not only a deliverer, but a pattern in how we're to live this life. How are we to live as citizens? Well, look to Christ. And you find your example there. You find the way that pleases the Father there. But he's also given us something further. That is found in verse number 17. Look at it with me of chapter number 3. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. God has given us the example of Christ. He's given us his word. He's also given us people in the church which we can look to and be instructed by. Paul uses this idea himself and he says, think the way I thought. Before he mentions that his desire was that he would know Christ and press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. He is pursuing Jesus and everything Jesus has promised him. That's where he spends his energy and his passion. And so he's telling the church, you need to think like this also. 
This ought to be your moving and driving force. Your motivation ought to be just like mine in this regard. Not because Paul was perfect, but because he was pointed in the right direction. His motivation, his drive was right. He wanted to glorify God and know Christ. And so you and I, we find people like that. And Paul says, let us set them in front of us as a pattern. As a pattern in how to live this life. And this isn't just Paul, but it's others as well. Notice in verse number 17, not just me, but set others in front of your eyes. Mark those who walk according to the example you have in us. You see, God has given us His Word and He's given us Christ, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And then He's given us the Word that is lived out or, or embodied in the lives of others. Showing us an example of how we ought to walk and things that we ought to do. And sometimes the things we ought not to do. Amen? You know, the Bible tells us, or we know naturally, let me just say it that way, we learn how to live life through the example of our parents. It is Father's Day, and, and we learn from our fathers and our mothers all about authority. We learn about relationships and order. Sometimes we learn about fishing and grilling and other stuff too. Those are good. I mean, you can say that, right? God gives us blessings in life. Many of you found your father and your mother your first disciples, the ones who brought you along to first teach you about Jesus and who he was. And in fact, those of you who have children, especially children still in the home, and even those of you who have grandchildren, discipleship begins with you, begins with me in the home. How we train our children all about who God is and Christ is and life and what is right and what is wrong. And, and as one Puritan said, our homes are the first seminaries or the first training grounds for young people. And so there is a, a natural implication that we live life through the examples of others. We pick up bad habits and bad things because we've, we've been taught those. We saw those played out in life. Now, eventually our kids take responsibilities for their own actions they have to learn what's right and wrong for themselves in that regard. But nevertheless, there is that natural response. Now the reason I say that is because Paul speaks to the church in Crete. In chapter number 2, he says, that ought to be part of the church's life. How do we live the Christian life? Well, we live it in ways where older men and older women are investing in modeling what Christianity is for younger men and younger women. You live in a way where we're not only being instructed or preached to and add and with and however you want to say that, but we're also being shown it through example, through uh, everyday life and through circumstance. And he's saying to a group at Philippi, he's saying, don't be discouraged, don't be downhearted. Find those who are following Christ and, and learn from that example. Grow in the fact of, of as you see others and their walk with Christ and their, their faith and their patience to glean from them what you can glean from them. That's hard for us as Americans, isn't it? I'd say that's hard for us as people. We're self-sufficient, individualistic, and we can do it. We can mess up all by ourselves. Is that, I think that's how it goes. We don't need others' help. And yet in the body of Christ, we have to and we should and we ought to. That's what discipleship is, growing and learning together, instructing and helping others along the way. 
I think Paul is telling uh, the church here and, and instruct them, how do you live this life? How do you know how to be a Christian? How do, you, how do you live out the kingdom of God and all of its principles? Well, you do so by reading the Word, by prayer, by, by setting your thoughts and affections on Christ and by being encouraged and discipled by others. And I think some of the reasons we don't do so as much is because it takes us being teachable, humble, Years ago, my uncle was watching some guy painfully working on a large job, and he was cutting in uh, some tile around a door jam, and he was taking way, way longer than you ought to. He probably got paid by the hour, I assume. (laughs) Anyway, that was awful to say that out loud. (laughs) So my uncle, in his benevolence, said, let me show you how to do that. So he sat down and, and like just kind of made lines all over this thing and, and gave it to him. See, see how quicker that is, how more efficient that is? My uncle got paid by the job. So uh, you, you see how to do that. And the guy says, no, I like doing it my way. Now, you take that for every words. We, we're creatures of habit. We like to do things. But we live life like that. When we can learn and glean from others, we, we would just soon stay in the same rut, in this, the same way we've always done things, and not be teachable and be pliable when it comes to being instructed in the Word, and instructed in life. We must be teachable, must be humble. But secondly, also, uh, he says here, not only does it take us being teachable and looking and seeing those who set themselves as an example for us, but note those who set themselves as rebels. I don't know why it is, but we like rebels, don't we? People that cut against the grain. They're our kind of people, you know? Our whole country's built on rebellion. So, take it for what it's worth. He said that ought not be the case when it comes to Christ and the gospel. There are many, which he says in verse number 18 and 19, who have become enemies of the cross, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with their mindset on earthly things. He's saying, understand that there are many out there, and and note who they are and what they're leading you to. They're enemies of the cross. They take you away from the simplicity of faith in Christ and devotion to Christ. Be warned of those. And so secondly, we live in this way by the example and the patterns God gives us in the church. And thank God for that. That's why it's good to have ministries that don't always separate people by age groups. Because you need the input of others. You need the input of others who've walked on before you. And sometimes those of you that have walked on, you need the input of others kind of pulling you back a little bit to what's going on in the world. We need to be a church that reflects that. I'm thankful to see so many times when that's played out. But notice, lastly, he speaks about their citizenship as a as a time of waiting. Verse number 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's three things he mentions that we wait here in verse number 20 and 21. And the first thing is we wait for Jesus himself. You're reminded of the words of Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, those who were lost. That's a requirement of being found is you have to be lost, isn't it? Jesus came into the world to save sinners and save the lost and outcast. 
And he does that through the work of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and faith. I understand all that, but it's still, he says here, what we wait for now is that coming second return of the Lord. We're waiting for our Savior. But notice, secondly, not only are we waiting for the person, Jesus Christ himself, but notice we're waiting for his work. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I know we have a lot of young people in here that are going to camp this summer. And if you're going to camp in your, your Deerfoot or Camp of the Woods or something like that in the summer, won't you raise your hand? It's a participation hour. Some of you young guys, are, some of you are ashamed of it. Look at that. <laughs> it's all right, I'll call the counselor. You know, I've always thought this was an amazing truth. One day we'll be conformed into the body, have a body just like Jesus. But I'd just be honest with you, when I was 20, it really wasn't that exciting. The older I get, the more exciting I think it is. <laughs> Any of you like that? <laughs> Things stop working right. And, and I love how encouraging most of you are. Wait till you get to 50. Wait till you get to your 60. You get to 60. Wait till you get to your 80. You know, and it's just like, okay, wait till I get to heaven. That's what you need to be saying. <laughs> So I understand this reality that he says here in verse number 20, beginning this, or verse number 21, beginning this. This may not sound too exciting for some of you guys. That's true. It's in the Bible. You believe it's going to be great. You'll be able to jump and do things you couldn't do, you know, like jump over buildings and all that. I don't know. But, but it is exciting to a degree. But for the Christian, for those in suffering, for the times of difficulty, and, and for those who have aged and are reminded that aging is sometimes difficult, This is a glorious promise to us. That what God has promised, the salvation He has given us now, and that we feel and embrace inwardly, the impact inwardly, will be demonstrated gloriously outwardly. That the the fullness of our salvation will be realized when we are with Him in that glorified state. When we're given a new body. Now, you and I both know it isn't just because joints work and backs don't hurt and all that other stuff that makes it exciting, but that is exciting too. I'm going to just go ahead and say that. But because as we anticipate the coming of the Lord in that glorified body, we are anticipating the eternal promises and inheritance He's given to us. It is the moment when our salvation will be complete, the moment when our faith will become sight. It is the moment when the consummation of all that Christ has done and all that we have anticipated is realized in that time of our transformation. He will change it. What a blessing to look forward to, but what a great promise and joy and reminder for our saints that's gone on to heaven through cancer and through sickness and disabilities and other things like that. There's a new body. And all that stuff is left here. All that stuff is swallowed up in the victory given to us in Jesus Christ. So we wait. We wait for our Savior. And we wait for our transformation. But we also wait for His rule. I googled um, what uh, millennials are most interested in. Because who, who, who can know, you know? <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> means we should bow our heads and close. 
<laughs> and many of them will tell you that they, as you can tell in your TV screens, that they are activists, passionate about the, the environment, the catastrophes we face globally, poverty, injustice, conflict, crime and violence, passionate about uh, peace which always eludes us. But notice what he says here at the end of verse number 21. We will be transformed, our lowly bodies, to be like his glorious body. If you've got a pen, you should underline that. It's a good, good thing to think on. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The very thing, at least at the core, the, the honest or the, the simple things that we long for down deep will fully be realized at the return of Christ. True peace and healing of the nations and prosperity and kindness. True justice and goodness, neighborly affection will only be ours at the return of Christ. We long not only for Christ and what He does to our own bodies, but what we long for deep down to be fully realized because He has secured all those things as He has subdued all things to Himself. Nothing is outside of His rule and reign. We notice that back in chapter number 2 where He says, God has highly exalted Him, bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will make a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be no sin, no violence, no corruption enter in. That's the promise of the kingdom of God. And that's what we await. That's what we await. A time when we beat tanks and detractors, as someone has once said. Don't you long for that? That doesn't mean you quit longing for peace and give up on all that stuff now. We strive and work for those things. But there's, a, there's that in us and that promise to us that, that one day what we chase, what we desire, what we long for deep down will be ours through Christ the new heavens and the new earth. I think that reminds us in the, in the conflict of this world and all the, all the stuff that just happens that you're not home yet. And Johnny has a home in Romania already waiting on him with no furniture. I'm sure they got buckets or something he can sit on. <laughs> Two years since he'd been to Romania. Home's prepared for him. He's waiting. Another 24 48 hours, I guess. I don't know. I don't even have a clock on me. You know, that's the way we live this Christian life, isn't it? Christ has prepared a home for us, waiting and longing and anticipating the day in which we will be home. And our sorrow and suffering and persecution and all the things that we go through is, is another reminder Christ has made a home for us. And one day we will be with Him. Notice verse number 4 as we conclude... The language of affection that he gives here is just like he just keeps throwing it out like he can't say what he really is feeling or thinking. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As he's instructing the church here, citizens of heaven, he says, 
Stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in your faith. Stay, stay with the gospel. Keep leaning, trusting, anticipating, waiting on Jesus because he will fulfill all that he's promised. You know, elsewhere we're told that we're to pray for the kingdom to come, pursue the kingdom and its principles and influences and its reach. But I was thinking of this in closing, and you might recall the end of Emma Lazarus. Does anyone know who that is? Some of you might who knows history. You might recall the end of Emma Lazarus's poem fixed upon the 305-foot Statue of Liberty, which reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be, breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That idea of a land that was a land of freedom and opportunity and hope and all that America had promised in those days. And I want to just tell you there is a greater promise one that is sure and will never falter. That is the promises of the kingdom of God, that eternal kingdom. And the call is just as glorious as Jesus says in Matthew chapter number 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's the offer to you this morning. Come to Christ and find rest and belonging and a future that is sure. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We gather together. Thank you for your blessings towards us. Thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. You've committed yourself to us. You've called us out of darkness into your light and called us your own possession. Lord, we thank you for just the depths of all of what that means. God, I pray this morning for those who are on the outside, those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ. Even today, they would hear the words of Jesus, come to me, and they would, without delay, come to the Savior by faith, turning, asking forgiveness of their sins, and putting their faith and trust in what He's done for them. In Jesus' name, amen.